see everybody this morning. You made it to church. I tell you what, last night was rough, wasn't it? Or rather, getting up was rough. I need a nap. Not because, not because of my schedule, because of my kids' schedules. Honestly, teenagers. Um, it's good to be back here. Um, thanks to John and Nick for preaching for the last couple of weeks. You know, that's a comfort that, that we have, that we that that I'm not the only one that, that gets to preach to you, but that should preach to you. Um, and uh, uh, I was able to hear one of Nick's sermons, and I didn't hear John, but uh, I'm appreciative of those two and, 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 and Peter to, uh, to add to the men in our church that, that bring the word. Uh, thanks to our team, uh, just for all the hard work that they do. Our kids ministry director, Gwen Scott, has been uh, ill with the flu for the last two weeks. And so y'all be praying for her. Pray that she gets well in time for the women's retreat because she's one of the speakers. But uh, here's, the, here's the good thing about that is, is that, I mean, the team, her team, the, the kids ministry team, of which many of you are a part, have really stepped up uh, to include today. Cold people just like out of the blue said, hey, I'll, uh, I'll pitch it for her. And uh, it's been neat to see us coming together as a church family, just doing what we got to do to make it work. All right, so today we're continuing in our series in John. Uh, we got two more weeks this week and next week we'll conclude that. And then we're going to embark on a new series that will lead us uh, to and through Easter uh, after that. Uh, so we're in the New Testament letter of James. You can be turning there. Um, James has not failed to challenge us throughout this series. Uh, James is a uh, is, is one to not be slow to, to just like slap us over the head with, with truth. And today he continues in that same vein. Uh, and he's going to end this letter as we're getting close to the end, very much the same way that he started it, by telling us to live what we believe. And the theme that he will embark on today is a related issue. How do we endure to the end? And there's a couple of words in our text that I want you to pay attention to because they're going to be repeated a couple times. And those words are patience and steadfastness. That's what sticks out in our text today. We're going to read James 5, verses 7 through 12 out loud together. Uh, grab a Bible. If you don't have one, there's some under the center aisle of, of seats. You can get that and use it as we're working through the scripture this morning. James chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. Let's read these out loud together. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, the changing of seasons. We can't figure out what season we're in, but we thank you that you're a creative God that keeps us uh, on our toes and, and delights us with the variety, uh, both of weather, of scenery, and, uh, and the like. Lord, thank you for the gathering of your church this morning. Uh, it's good to be in the house of the Lord, uh, singing your praises, 
uh, listening to your word. God, we pray that uh, we would be exhorted and challenged uh, by these words from James today. I pray that you would give us um, eyes to see, ears to hear, but also hearts to receive uh, all that you would have uh, in regards to uh, the patience and the steadfastness that you expect of us uh, as we live uh, in really difficult lives on the earth. Uh, Lord, be with us today. We pray that in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. So the saying goes, never pray for patience, because if you pray for patience, what's going to happen? God's going to test you, and, and that test is going to um, give you opportunities to grow in your patience. Actually, there's a couple other sayings. Uh, one is the, the greatest test that a Christian could have is to, you know, the test of patience. But also a second behind it is to, uh, to go to, uh, I think it tests you is going to Walmart during Christmas season. Have y'all ever done that? I mean, that's no joke. I think actually that's the hardest thing. Harder than God sending you a test of patience. Um, Actually, this idea of not praying for patience is is a misnomer. I mean, think about it. Um, we actually should pray for patience. We should seek patience because it's a fruit of the spirit. Galatians five. And if God says it's a fruit of the spirit, something that we should desire uh, emanating from our life that comes from him and the spirit in us, then it's not actually something that we should shy away from asking God about. Um, patience and the fruit of the spirit, we should want it. But think for just a few minutes about all the ways in your life that you really need patience. I'm looking at all you parents with young kids. And it's true, isn't it? Like when our kids are in the, the toddler age, under five or so, we need patience. We need patience for all the crying and the whining and all that stuff that they can't do by themselves that just wears you out. Check it out. Y'all shaking your heads. Like, yes, yes, yes. I need patience with that. But guess what? Those kids grow up and they become teenagers and they don't need you to do everything for them. But you need even more patience. I'm learning when your kids become teenagers and the few of you that have teenagers are like shaking heads. Yes, yes, I need patience. But think about it. We also need patience in our relationships. Every relationship that you have from uh, sibling relationships to uh, family to family, uh, Parent to kid, but also spouse to spouse. Husbands and wives need patience as they deal with each other. We need patience as we uh, deal with the evils in our world. All those ways that you are sinned against and that life just comes at you and presses in on you. All the ways that you that you may experience injustice and you're waiting for the system to uh, to give you vengeance and to relieve you of the, the wrongs that are done to you. We need patience in regards to that. We need patience when life doesn't go as expected. We need patience when life gets hard. And that's the topic that James is giving us, talking about today in our text. How do we remain patient and steadfast uh, in regards to what we believe? So as Christians, he's, he's, he's basically pushing this against us. How do we ensure that the faith that we possess and the hope that we have endures all the way to the end, the end that is until Jesus comes back or until uh, death parts us from the earth. And that uh, that's what our, our text address addresses today, it addresses that question. And James begins in um, chapter seven, in chapter five or seven uh, with these words. He says, be, be patient, therefore, brothers. Uh, if you recall the, the section that John preached last week, the section just before this, particularly verse one, you notice a change in James's tone. In 
chapter 5, verse 1, James says, come now. And then he goes on to rebuke those who were rich, taking advantage of those who were of lesser status in the society. Back up a few verses, chapter 4, verse 13, he says the same thing. Come now, you who say this or that. And um, come now really is uh, literally, James is saying, pay attention or look here, I've got some things to say to you. And James is not trying to be unkind, but he is speaking truth. And James does that very clearly throughout the rest of his letter. He's, he's saying, pay attention to what I have to say. Uh, and, and then, for whatever reason, in our text today, he sort of takes a turn. His words aren't so harsh. They aren't so hard. In our text, he's either dress, addressing a new group or he's changed his tone uh, to come alongside the, the same group that he's talking about, choosing to address them in a different way. And we know that by what he says. He says, be patient, therefore, brothers. The literal rendering is brothers and sisters. And that's the language that he will take through the rest of the chapter. It's kind of a a familial feel. He's coming alongside and saying, hey, there's a new sympathy. I'm identifying with you. But at the same time, this is not a different James. He's, He's the same man that shoots straight and basically gives us the truth. And Of course, he's not just comforting his audience or comforting us. He's meaning to give them truth. And we know that because he gives a lot of imperatives. And so in the section of scripture that we just read, there's at least eight commands, eight things that he's telling us to do in the first four verses uh, in verses um, seven through through 12. And what do they involve? They involve these words, patience and endurance and remaining steadfast until the end. If I could paraphrase what James is saying to us in, in two words, here's what he's saying. He's saying, hold on. He's saying, hold on. Uh, not if, but when suffering comes. Remember in verse one, uh, uh, verse five of chapter one, he said, he says, trials are going to come. This, that's the life that we live in this world. You're going to endure some, some difficult things. And so he's saying, in, in spite of the, the suffering, expect it. Injustice is a part of the life that we live in. Everyone is going to face a little heartache. For some of you, you'll go the distance and you may even have to be a martyr for for the kingdom. But he's saying, hold on. And then he goes on to address how we can remain patient and steadfast in the face of all that. And here's what he says. He actually doesn't say anything. He gives us examples. He gives us three examples. The example of the farmer, the example of the prophet and the example of of Job from the Old Testament. James is inviting us to examine uh, the, fig- the you know, figures of people, of Bible characters, and of, of people that we can see in society to look at their example. And in that, he gives us a reason to be patient, but also to endure. So the first example is the example of the farmer. Look at verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. Think about, I mean, perhaps you grew up on a farm. Perhaps you know some farmers. All of us eat food, so you know how your food gets to you, right? And so fruit, various crops, or even the animals that are grown and matured on a farm. Think about all the things that would have to have, that would have to take place for that farmer to be able to produce that and then give it to us. It takes time. It takes time to grow. And a farmer has to have patience in regards to that. Uh, the early and the late rains refers to the Mediterranean climate, which is basically dry. Okay, so it's, a, it's like a desert land. And so a rightly harvested crop would have to have 
spring in the autumn or the fall, uh, rain in the autumn and the fall, or also and also rain in the spring to make that that harvest produce all the fruit it's supposed to produce to make a full crop. So James says, look at the farmer. And what we're supposed to look at is look at all the ways that the farmer goes about doing what he's called to do. Firstly, he has to be patient in in how he uh, tills the soil and makes it ready to receive the seed, to fertilize the seed. And then what does he do? He, He waits and he waits and he waits. He does what he can do. But most of the things that Uh, that are required to make whatever the seed that he's planted grow is is the process that God has set in place for that that plant to take root and to grow. And so he waits patiently for that process to happen. Not only does he wait in patience, but he is attentive to the process. He's attentive to the season that he's planting in, paying attention to when it's going to rain and how much it's going to rain. But he also is dependent on the Lord for that because the farmer can't make it rain on his crops. And in that, the farmer is made to endure. And what's interesting about James's example is that obviously this is there's nothing particularly Christian about it. If you think about it, there's I mean, he's just bringing out something that we can observe that this is how God's world works. There are Christian farmers. There are non-believers who are farmers they still operate under the same principles. And that principle is they've got to sow, they've got to wait. And unfortunately, I mean, that they have to exert patience. But more importantly, the farmer, whether he's a Christian or not, has to go through some hard work to produce whatever he's trying to produce in its season. He has to wait through that entire season for that crop to produce whatever that crop is. And so James is telling us something that we can learn from the farmer. And that something is verse eight. Be patient, he says. You also be patient. But then he continues, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Verse nine, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. And so James says, be patient, but don't just be patient. He says, establish your hearts. And that uh, word phrase simply means stand firm. Don't give in to the pressure of life. Don't let it blow you over. Stand, stand and, and endure through whatever it is that's presenting you, whatever life is presenting you. And then he tells us why. He says, the Lord is coming. In fact, the Lord is near. That's a loaded phrase. There's a lot there. The Bible has to say a lot about the coming of the Lord. But the best way to understand what James is alluding to is to think about the entire history of salvation. Go all the way back in your Bible to Genesis chapter three. Of course, God creates the world. He creates human beings. He puts Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, a perfect people in a perfect environment, walking and talking with God. And he gives them a command. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of the fruit of uh, good and evil. Not the tree of good and evil. Right. So don't do that and you'll be fine. It was a test. They failed the test. They eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And sin ensues. They cover up in shame. They know they're naked and they've been deceived by Satan himself. And then God issues a a curse on the serpent, a curse on the man and the woman, a curse on the earth, really. But there's in that curse a promise of hope to come. 
Genesis 3.15, God says, one day the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. The seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Guess what? That has already happened. It happens on the cross. God incarnates himself as a baby, lives life on earth as the second person of the Trinity, Jesus of Nazareth, and he goes to the cross in our place for our sin. And the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent happens on the cross when Jesus uh, is triumphant over Satan, death, hell, and the grave. He rises up in victory, his victory, but also your victory as well for those who trust in Jesus. And so if you, look, if you think about Genesis 3.15 being the, the, really the first gospel, the, the theologians call that the proto-evangelion, the first gospel, the first pronouncement of good news in all of the Bible. And from there, then all these events in the history of salvation start to unfold. Firstly, you have the gathering of a people. You have the, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the creation of the nation of Israel. And then you have the Exodus. They're put into slavery for 400 years in Egypt. And God raises up uh, a man named Moses to free them from slavery in Egypt. And then you have the forming of a kingdom. They go and God brings them into uh, a place that they would call their own. And really, they form a theocracy where God is their king and he calls them to be his people. And he invites them to uh, to worship him and obey him as he lords over them, but loves them through uh, a, a covenant, steadfast kind of, of love. But they can't do that. They continue to disobey God. And so because they are in disobedience to God, he sends them into exile. He sends the northern king in the exile. But that doesn't refute the take away the, the fact that God has promised an eternal king that will come through the line of David. And so he invites them to, to again, uh, form a kingdom. But then they continue to disobey God and God sends them into exile. He sends the southern kingdom into exile. And then cross over to the New Testament. There's the advent of the king. That's the life, death and the resurrection of the king, King Jesus. You have his death on the cross, his resurrection. You have his ascension into heaven. You have the sending of the spirit, the giving of the authoritative word through the apostles. You have the age of the church. Guess what, folks? All that stuff has happened. That basically is what James is talking about. What does that mean? Verse nine, James says, behold, the judge is standing at the door. Here's what James is talking about. There's nothing that stands in the way of Christ's return. All these events in history have happened. Christ is standing at the door. There's no further event. You don't need to add extra pages at the end of your Bible so that you can write some stuff down as it comes up that's going to um, make salvific history uh, uh, more faithful to what's supposed to happen. If you're a Christian, the next item on your cosmic to-do list is waiting for Jesus to show up. He's going to come in the clouds, riding on a horse. He's going to have white hair, eyes blazing, sword out of his mouth, tattoo on his thigh, and he's coming to open up a can of you-know-what, defeating all the rest of his enemies. That's the next thing on our to-do list. You'll see him when he comes in the clouds, or you'll see him at his death. 
That's what's next. And so we don't need to leave any gas in the tank. You can use up all your gas. James says, wait patiently, establish your hearts, stand firm against all the pressures of life, all the suffering, all the things that you uh, come against, endure through those. But, but do this, give your life your all right now. Why? Because Jesus is coming. You don't have to, you don't have to hold back. Two implications, two quick implications from what James is saying. First, he's inviting us to reflect on the fact that farmers work really hard. Some of you all grew up on a farm. All right, I know nothing about farm work except for the, the friends that I've had that, that grew up on a farm. Um, I had, I mean, farmers don't, don't get a day off. I can recall the, uh, the number of animals that, that, I don't know why my parents did this. They, they let me have a lot of pets when I was growing up. I had a, we had a couple of dogs. Uh, I had a cat that had seven kittens, so we gave the cats away. I mean, one cat's enough. Think about seven. I had, a, uh, I had about four or five hamsters. They kept dying on me. So at like every birthday and Christmas for about four years, I asked for a new hamster, and I, I was either squeezing them too hard or, or I don't know what was going on. They just kept dying on me. I had a rabbit. I can't remember what happened to my rabbit. I think my dad might have killed him and ate him. Um, I had a duck. My duck ran away. Obviously, obviously, I was not very responsible with the amount of pets that I had. And so, you know, except for the first two years of, of me and Larissa's marriage where we had a, a, a diva of a dog. His name was Enzo. He was beautiful, red hair, but he just had, he had drama associated with him. I mean, we've been on pet sabbatical. I mean, we haven't had a pet since then. And rightly so. Why? Because having a pet is hard. Guess what? Farmers, I mean, it's no joke. They get no break. I've been on pet sabbatical. A farmer does not get to take a sabbatical. He does not get a day off. And that doesn't, I mean, it's it's not if he uh, has animals or fruit crops or vegetable crops. The farmer gets no day off at all whatsoever. There's no place for passivity or indifference or escapism. And really, it's the same thing for us. That's what James is is encouraging us. The judge is standing at the door and we should be awaiting his coming. But just because we believe in heaven does not mean that we dismiss the work that he has for us on this earth right now. The farmer works hard. We're supposed to be working hard as well. In fact, you know, the thing about the farmer, the farmer's fruit is perishable. Uh, He grows the crop. He uh, he brings it to what the, the, the state that he can bring it, and he turns it over to the butcher or to a, a grocery produce store, and uh, he sells it for one thing the first day. The next day, it's half price, and if he doesn't sell it the third day, I mean, it's going to get thrown in the compost bin. The work that God has for us, the fruit of our labor, is eternal. So here's what James is encouraging us. Work hard. Live life in light of Christ. Here's a second uh, implication. It's a little bit less complicated than the first. We're being invited to think about our our own lives, especially if you're not a Christian. Here's the thing. One day, all of us will face death. There's no way around it. We'll come face to face with death. And there's few people on earth who have approached death with not at least a little bit of anxiety of what the end will bring, what it will look like, what it will mean for my for my soul. And so the encouragement is examine your own heart. What if the Lord 
truly were coming back, what if he came back today? Where would that leave you? First example is example of the farmer, and it's an example of being patient. The second example is example of the prophets, and it's an example of being steadfast. Look at verse 10. Verse 10, he says, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. So the prophets, like the farmers, are an example of patience, but the, the prophets also are an example of suffering. And obviously in the New Testament, for those of you who have read much of the New Testament, uh, suffering is, doesn't simply mean like you're going through a hard time, that you're suffering hardship, but it means to suffer hardship when you're obeying God. That's a different thing. Not just suffering for suffering's sake. It's you're doing what God has said and told you to do, but you're suffering anyway. So imagine a family, not, like, not unlike many that exist in our church, that um, at great sacrifice themselves decides to care for children in the foster care system or even to adopt. Okay, Because they believe that Every person born is uh, is born in the image of God and children uh, without families to take care of them and look after them. I mean, that the Bible tells us to look after uh, widows and orphans. It's something that the Bible tells us to do because we are we all have value because we are created in the image of God. And I would tell you uh, that family that chooses to go through that sacrifice and adopt or foster a child it's going to go through uh, some sense of suffering. Would you agree? Those adoptive families in the room? And we got, we got quite a few. We've had several adoptive and foster families in our church. How, what suffering do you experience? Well, first is monetarily. Yeah, you're going to suffer uh, financially because you're adding another mouth to feed and take on the responsibility of another person in your home. There may be suffering as you assimilate a non-biological child into a family with other biological children. If you're a family that there are no children yet and you're bringing a foster or adoptive kid in, there's still some kind of assimilation that happens that may uh, associate some, uh, some suffering for you. There may be uh, some sense of suffering for the child as they grow up and they come to some sense of, uh, I've, I've been engrafted into a family that wasn't my own. So who were the people that gave me up and why did they give me up? I have an adoptive sister and she experienced that when she was about 19 to 20 years old. Just a lot of rebellion as she was struggling with the fact that she knew that she was loved in the, in the family that took her in, our family. But she wanted to know about all these things that, that had to do with the family that, that did not want her or that let her go. So they're suffering. And this isn't an appropriate parallel, but here's, here's my point. If you choose to follow Jesus every day in obedience to, to God, you are going to face suffering. In the Bible, there's a theology of suffering. In Christian life, there is going to be suffering. It's not if, but when, James says that. So here's what James is saying. As an example of suffering and, and patience, take the prophets. He's not, giving us a, he's not just giving us a narrative. He's actually telling us something to do. So he's saying, take the prophets. But really what he means is look at the prophets and do what they do. Um, I read something lately that I found pretty insightful. This is a December 2014 article. And the article was about the influence that people can have on us. And here's what the article said. It said, people become the average of their five closest friends. 
Let me say it again. People become the average of their five closest friends. That statement didn't stick out to me until I read, you know how sometimes you have articles and people comment all kind of crazy stuff underneath the article. And so there's one person that made this comment. He said, well, if I'm the average of my five closest friends, I want all my friends to be billionaires. <laughs> Absolutely. I said, let the church say amen. Right. All right. So that's not what he's, I mean, obviously, he's not talking about monetary influence. He's, he's talking about the. Uh, the way that the things and the people around us influence us. Think about all the ways that you're influenced by the things around you. We're influenced by the news. We're influenced by uh, commercials that come on between the shows that we watch. We're influenced by all the, the kinds of TV shows that we watch. We're influenced by bumper stickers on the backs of cars as people are driving around. We're influenced by... Um, uh, the college that you went to and what your college professes and even the, the alumni news that you get, we're influenced by people's split second reaction when, the, uh, when you tell them where you're going on vacation. Like, you're going there on vacation? How can you afford that? Don't, isn't that what they do? We're influenced by Facebook. Everybody doesn't have Facebook, but for those of you that are on Facebook, check it out. You're influenced by Facebook. Here's what James is asking us. We have the history of the prophets of what they've done in representing God. Have they influenced you at all? Imagine, if you will, I'm a, you know, most of y'all on Facebook. Who, who's not on Facebook in the room? Like two of y'all. All right. So, all right. Facebook example. Imagine having like your 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 Facebook timeline, and you're just checking out what's going on and. Think about this thing that James is saying. He said, look at the prophets and you have like some of the prophets in your Facebook timeline. This is what I, this is what I imagine it would look like. So I'm going down my timeline. It's like, ah, John Scott is doing PT with a, a Medal of Honor winner. I mean, how cool could that be? That's a pretty cool picture. And then you see a little bit further down your timeline, Abigail, uh, Abigail Workman just took some pictures at the park with her kids. She's a pretty good photographer. You know, I might need, need to get her to take some pictures of me. She made me look good. She made my, made my tummy look <laughs> A little bit further down my timeline, oh my gosh, Eric and, this is not good. Eric and Janet are getting ready to leave to go to PCS to another, another place. Uh, I'm not going to like that. In fact, let me comment, boo. <laughs> I'm tired of the military taking all my people from church. <laughs> A little bit further down, oh my God, Peter is ranting again about some political thing. You know what? He's got a point there. I would like that. Like, I'm going to share this one. That's good. Y'all need to read this. But then you read this. The prophet Jeremiah. Oh, look at this picture. This is hideous. The prophet Jeremiah is wearing an ox yoke as a sign of God's judgment. And look at this comment. Well, at least he got out of the well at the king, threw him in uh, uh, before Israel was taken into exile. I mean, could you imagine that? I mean, one of the prophets being in your timeline.